0: Father, we thank you. We're all here because of what happened at the cross. And we are grateful. Holy Spirit, would you speak through me? Remove me from the equation. Even move despite me in my imperfections. Use the gift you've given me to build up this body. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Take a seat. As you know, I obviously like movies, and one of the movies that I I was really looking forward to see that was, quite frankly, a disappointment, was the long-awaited fourth film of The Matrix Trilogy, entitled Matrix Resurrections. Chase uh, Cook is staying with us, and we introduced him to The Matrix, and he really liked it, and then he saw the final movie, The Matrix Resurrections, and did you even make it through the movie, or did you fall asleep during it? It was pretty terrible. It was pretty terrible, yeah. (laughs) But as with most movie sequels, the the fourth installment failed to match even come close, quite frankly, to what was the stunning and, and unprecedented and surprising success of the original movie called The Matrix. It was released in 1999. Yes, I am dating myself. It was the year my son, Mark, was born. <clears throat> I remember going to the um, grocery store into the the DVD section and where you'd rent the movies and so on. And Do you even have those anymore? Yeah, the grocery store, no. Yeah, store, no. <laughs> yeah. anyways. But it was... Um, Unique, The Matrix was. It was a, g- a great storyline, and that's part of the problem with Hollywood today: is that they're retreading movies because they're not really any good writing. But it also had cutting-edge special effects. Of course, the story centered on a young man. Is there anyone seen the movie The Matrix or any of the Matrix movies? Okay. Well, it the story centered on a young man named Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, and it was his journey of realizing who he was and what he could do. In short, Neil was the one, or, or the chosen one, as we would call it, the savior who would end the war with the machines, between the humanity and machines, and bring about the long-awaited peace. that sound familiar, that theme? Yeah, stole from the Bible. But before he was able to save the humans, Neil had to first only know who he was. He had to also learn to use the unique power that was available to the one, And the way he learned to live out that power of who he was was through training, and a couple other circumstances in his life. But in one particular scene, um, Neo is using kung fu to spar with the leader of the Human Resistance, and that, of course, is who, Morpheus. Now, as Morpheus defeats Neo for the second time, he says this, and I always remembered this for some reason um, because I thought it was so great. He says to Neil, what are you waiting for? You're faster than this. Don't think you are. Know you are. Now, while being a secular movie, The Matrix was filled with, as you can see, Christian symbolism. It was heavy in it, quite frankly. There's a new birth that occurs in the movie. There's a, a death. There's a resurrection. There's a character called Trinity. There's a ship called the Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Even Neo is referred to as a personal Jesus Christ. Uh, But the biggest spiritual parallel is the journey that Neo embarks upon to live out who he is, the one. And quite frankly, that is the challenge of the Christian life, right? To live out who you are, specifically who you are in Christ. So I want to begin this morning as we talk about our... Series on uh, Angry Birds, and this is Living Offense Free Life. Yeah, we'll get into that, and yes, it is possible. Um, As I said in Sunday school, I thought I could get this sermon done and and this passage done and be done with the Angry Birds sermon series. Well, that's not going to happen. To actually explain to you how to live an offense free life, yes, it is possible, you'll see. Um, But I want to talk to you and answer the question who are you? That's where we begin. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul has listed for us positional truths. These are things that God has done for us. These are all true of you. If you can see these, I've been in pretty tall <laughs> or big font, but he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. You get Ephesians 1 3. He chose us, this is the Father, by the way, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless so before god's eyes this all happened by the way in eternity past before anything started before the foundation of the world were laid you were chosen you were elected okay in love as a father he predestined us for adoption to himself see god wants a family and he adopted us to himself personally he made us to the praise of his glory and he has given us grace. He has given us redemption and forgiveness, and that happened through his son, obviously. He's made known to us the mystery of his will. That's what the son did to us. The son earned for us an inheritance. He has given us an inheritance that was pre-planned before the world began, Okay? He has sealed us. This is what the Holy Spirit does now. So we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He sealed our salvation by giving us the Holy Spirit, ensuring our inheritance. He was a down payment, is what He was. You ever put something in layaway? What do you do? Put a down payment down to hold it? That's what God did, ensuring our salvation. Um, He's given us resurrection power. Who raised Jesus Christ from the dead? The Father or the Spirit? With the Spirit. So that the Spirit has shared with us His resurrection power. He's made us alive from the dead. We were dead to God, now we're alive. He's taken us who are far off, meaning Gentiles, and we are now near to God. He's made us, Jew and Gentile, into one new man in Himself. He's given to us the great mystery of the truth of the gospel, which of course is the church. Now, knowing these positional truths is so important that Paul writes, actually has a prayer that he prays, and he writes it for us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. Everyone turn there. Get your Bibles out. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I would put this, these verses up there. It would just take up too many slides, so... <coughs> Paul has laid out for us all the things that God has done for us. These things are what are true of you. We call them positional truths. Okay? He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, that's the resurrection power, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. In other words, Paul wants the Ephesians to know three truths. And what are the three truths he wants them to know? Well, they're right here, you can look up here on the screen, you can see it in your text. you want to know the hope of Christ's calling, the riches of the glory of Christ's inheritance and resurrection power. Now if I'm going to fast through this, I apologize, we've been through this before, but this is crucial to understanding how to live an offense-free life. You're to know these things. Now, you know my wife Erica but you don't know her like I know her. I know her in, at a level and in an experiential way that you don't. You are to know these truths at a deep level and an experiential level, okay? The word enlightened the eyes through your hearts. You remember the story in the road to Emmaus? The disciples were walking and Jesus comes alongside, starts talking to them. He hides his true identity from them. And as they're talking and as Jesus is talking to them, says their hearts were on fire. That's the enlightenment he's talking about. You are to deep down, very core of yourself, know the hope of Christ's calling for your life, the riches of the glory of Christ's inheritance, resurrection power. And he's already laid out your calling, the things that we went over, of all the things that God's done for us. Now all that God has given us means that we, and this is going to be shocking, are different from the world. We did a whole sermon series Matthew's chapters five through seven, right? And I said you're different. We're different. Now, to illustrate my point and how different you are, in an earlier sermon series, I said that the first three chapters of Ephesians—I'm curious if you remember this—describe the specifications of a believer. It's similar to the specifications of a car. So I said, here is what an unbeliever looks like if he or she were a car. Remember this? It's a Ford Fiesta. Does anyone have the nerve or or the courage to say, I own a Ford Fiesta? (laughs) Right there. Can can Frank and Don the elders lay hands on that man, cast out the evil (laughs) spirits, and uh, you've owned one? Yep. Remember I told the story of Reichert Ford in Lancaster, Ohio, that they were selling a brand new van, and they would throw in... A brand new Ford Fiesta if you bought the brand new van. Most people didn't take him up on it because they didn't think the deal was real, but I also think they didn't want a Ford Fiesta. This was back in the late 80s, early 90s. I don't think there are more reliable cars now, but you know, who knows? But that's it, you're the unbeliever. There's the specifications that God has given every human being. Okay? So that is an unbeliever. This is a believer. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby, right? Okay, so you were this, now you're this. So Keith, Keith, do you want to be this or this? As long as get to keep the money. <laughs> okay, this is the believer, okay? So how are believers different from unbelievers. Well, just like a Ford Mustang GT, that's a, if you know anything about the Ford Mustang, that GT is the highest model, the most powerful model, and so on. That's Am I right? A Shelby. That's a Shelby. Is that the Shelby? Anyway, it's a Mustang. Anyways, it's got power. It's the point. Yeah, speak no more, all right? Um, it's got a higher quality interior than the Fiesta. Sturdier tires, heavy-duty brakes, and suspension. Certainly, a more powerful engine. I don't know what a Shelby has. Is the Shelby GT500? How many horsepower? It it all changes. Close to 800 horsepower. That's a lot of horsepower. Okay, you might get what 120 horsepower out of that Fiesta. Downhill. Downhill? On On downhill. Okay. (laughs) There is Keith defending the Fiesta. Jeez. Gas Gas mileage. There you go. You got that one, okay? So the, the the GT, it's a more powerful engine than the Ford Fiesta. You now, believers, you have more riches and in resources, including more power than an unbeliever to live the kingdom life. Unfortunately, here's the problem: even though you're this, you live like that. You live like Keith, okay? <laughs> So, you have all this power and you're living like this. Okay? So, there's really no difference in the lifestyles of believers and unbelievers, and that shouldn't be. Now, this is why Paul closes, this is a key, the first three chapters of Ephesians with another prayer. And it's this right here. So, turn to Ephesians chapter 3, 14 to 21. He says this, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, and is is God the Father rich? Oh, yeah. Plenty to spare. What? To be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God, not to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus to all generations Forever and ever. Amen. Now, the purpose of this prayer is to turn believers in from this into this. This is a picture of a Mustang that's actually moving. Okay? It's not just sitting there looking good, but really is like this. It's actually in action. It is moving forward. Okay? Now Here's the key, the way to get the Ford Mustang GT to utilize all its powerful capabilities. You gotta put the key in the ignition and turn it on. And the key is what, or rather who? It's the empowerment or the filling or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, God gives us the desire and the capability or ability to live the Christian life as he intended it to be lived. So God has made it possible to capitalize on all of our resources, all the things that I just mentioned to you that God has done for you. You can draw upon all those resources and all this power that you have in Christ because you can capitalize on all that. I gave you the Holy Spirit. He will guide you, and he'll take you through what we call progressive steps laid out in the prayer that I just read to you. Here are the steps in Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, and they are progressive. If they weren't progressive, it would be easy, and, but they're progressive, which means that you, you can stop and be ineffective. Here's how it begins. The first thing is that you are strengthened, the strengthening of the inner man. You're strengthened with power by the Holy Spirit in your inner being. That is the filling or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit lives within you at the moment of salvation, but does he control you, guide you, fill you, lead you, empower you? That's, a, that's, a, that's another decision you must make. So he's praying that here's all that God's done for you. To access this, you need to be strengthened inwardly by the Holy Spirit, okay? And typically, historically, I think it's a assembly God position, is that it's a crisis you go through. You're, you're tired of sinning. You're tired of the battle of sin. And the scriptures are very clear. You know, you know Romans 7, I, the good I do, I don't, you know, the bad I do, I don't want to do. The good I do, I don't do. And the struggle with sin and so on and so forth. Chapter 8 is the key. He's giving you the Holy Spirit. It's a spirit-filled life. So he strengthens you and he gives you the desire and the power for what? Well, the second point. So if you haven't had this, then all you are is this right here. Okay? This is not taught that much anymore, unfortunately. And the church is impotent. Now, so that, that's the first step. The next thing is so that Christ can settle down and be at home in your lives. This is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It says so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The word dwell means settle down. So in other words, Christ comes home and your heart is like a home. He comes in your heart, it's like a home. And you've given him access to every area of your life. Every, act, every area of your home. In other words, he's Lord over your, 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 your kitchen, over your TV, what you watch, over what happens in the bedroom, what happens in the study, all of that. That's the desire he gives you. When he strengthens you with power by the Holy Spirit, he gives you a desire for Jesus Christ to be your Lord. Because he never is just your Savior. If you just accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're probably not a believer. He is always also your Lord. Okay? Okay? He didn't come to be a savior. (laughs) He came to be a lord. He's going to install that lordship when he comes for a second time. And so, that desire, I want him to be lord over every area of my life, and that involves surrender. That involves dependence. That involves the end of self, and you're tired of ruling your own life, and you give up, and you surrender to him. Okay, So he is now increasingly growing as Lord over every area of your life and watch what happens next. This won't happen. The energy to do this and, and the desire comes here. First step, second step. The next thing that happens is so that we live lives that are rooted and grounded in love. Now what does that mean? You're rooted and grounded in love. Well, now that Jesus Christ is Lord over your life, he can now, and he's comfortable in your life, He comes home from work, is in your heart, takes off his slippers, is comfortable. He can now live his life through you, and his life is always one of love. Because God is love. Jesus is the epitome of love. And he says, if you're my follower, if you're my disciple, you will what? Be known by your love for one another. So he's going to live a life of love through you. So you start to operate and live a life out of a foundation of love. And it's completely foreign to you. Instead of drawing back, you're reaching out. Instead of cursing, you're blessing. You begin to learn these things. Okay? That leads to the second thing so that we can be filled with incomprehensible love. Talk about the knowing, and again, knowing deeply knowing, experiencing this love of God that surpasses knowledge. It's incomprehensible. What does that mean? By experience, I think it means this when someone hurts you, you respond in love. If that's your reaction, you can get to that point really quickly, you're on this, you've gotten to this point in this progression. Now you're gonna see how this plays out, obviously with being offended, right? But that doesn't make sense to you and to me, right? You hurt me, my natural reaction is to what? Retaliate. No, if you are strengthened with power by the Holy Spirit, if he's filling you, controlling you, He's Lord over your life and increasingly Lord over your life, over every thought, every desire. You're beginning to operate at a foundation of love, and you now you start to respond in love to even people that are your enemies. By the way, that's the definition of a believer, right? Blessed are those who what? You pray for your enemies, right? You're loving them. They're, when they persecute you, you're in a great position. You respond in love. When you do that doesn't make sense to the world, even to you, but that's what your reaction is. Then what happens is you can be filled with the internal fullness of God. I don't know what that means. I can't find out what it means. You're filled with all the fullness of God. God is completely filling you. That's what he wants to do because he already lives inside you. You're being made into a household of God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit live within you. So you have that. You go through all of that. Then the end is this. God is now able to demonstrate his power through us for his own glory. He does exceeding abundantly beyond anything we could ever ask or imagine. Now how many people do you know that are like that? The person that lives out this is that mustang that's moving, okay? So having given us everything we need now to live the Christian life, and the question is simple then, how are we then to live? And that's Ephesians chapter four through six, the rest of this letter. It starts with living a life worthy of our calling, and it's called the lowly walk, or the walk of humility. Here it is. We just looked at the prayer of Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, and then this is the next thing. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, and this is Paul speaking, implore, it means he's begging, you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I want to talk to you about living a balanced life. The word worthy that you see there in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 it has a root in a Greek word that has to do with equalizing or balancing the scales. So what Paul is saying here is your lifestyle should be equalized with your identity in Christ. All the things that we went over. Now Paul further defined, I mean, there should be a perfect balance between who you are and how you live. And Paul further defines the worthy walk with the phrase, calling with which you have been called. So your walk, which means your daily conduct, should match the calling to which you've been called. And where have or what is your calling? It's Ephesians chapter 1, all those things that I listed for you. Now, obviously, no one can live a worthy, a life worthy of their calling if they don't know what their calling is. And again, that's why Paul prayed that we would experientially know the hope of our calling. You see that? You've got to really know the hope of your calling. you got to know your calling, but God's calling you to. But it's also the reason why Paul first gives us doctrine. That's Ephesians chapter one through three before he calls us to do anything else. So it's doctrine always before duty. And what we are to do, the duty is a, Ephesians chapters 4 through 6. See, I like to think of the worthy walk, it begins like this. If my theology says this, then my behavior has to be this. If my theology says this, my behavior has to be this. And the model for the worthy walk is, of course, Jesus. Now, Jesus is fully God. He's the second person of the Godhead, the God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. He eternally exists as God the Son, and according to the plan of God, the Father, Jesus, and if you know or not, is your creator. He's the creator. All things are made what? By him, through him, and for him. So when it says that God spoke, and everything came into existence, Genesis 1, who spoke? Jesus. So he's the one who made the world. The one who cast the billions of galaxies into space. The one who calls every star by name. Isn't that neat? The one who preserves the innumerable planets in their courses. The one who weighs the mountains in a balance. The hills on a scale. The one who takes up the islands as a very small thing. Who holds the waters in the hollow of his hand the span of the hollow of his hand the one before whom the inhabitants of the world are like grasshoppers and yet despite his exalted position what did he do he humbled himself and became a man and he walked the worthy walk now here's the point his high position his this is a word that's popular now Privilege required him to walk humbly. To balance out the scales of his calling. Does that make sense? Now the same principle applies to us. We are to walk as he walked. In 1 John 2, 6 it says this. The one who says he abides in him, meaning in Christ, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. In other words, what what John is saying here is that the way Jesus walked, we are capable of walking in the same manner. Do you believe that? Now, like Christ, we too have been elevated to a heavenly position. We've been blessed with what? All spiritual blessings, We've been elevated to obtain the eternal inheritance, which in essence means we are those who own the unsearchable riches of Christ. You own that. That is yours. You're privileged. You're special. We are possessors of Christ, possessors of the Holy Spirit, possessors of the fullness of God himself. We have been, as it says in Ephesians 2, 6, raised us up with him, And seated us with him where? In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so our high, elevated, exalted, lofty position demands that we balance out the scales and live a life worthy of our calling. And how do we walk the worthy walk? You walk it humbly, it's a low walk. The word is lowly in the original, it's weird. Humble or humility with all humility. See that? With all humility. You're in this high position. All that privilege, all those resources, it's got to be balanced out. How do you balance it out? With all humility. Humility and gentleness, and patience, and forbearance, and so on, we only have time to get to humility this morning. Your high position means, means it demands that you walk lowly. And I'm looking at a lot of eyes that look like I've never heard this before. But we live in a world that exalts pride, and humility is something that is foreign. We've been, we're in, indoctrinated, it's... it's, it's Self is exalted in our world. Basically, anything in this world that you see exalted, throw it out. (laughs) Because it's under the dominion of, of Satan. But your high position demands that you walk lowly. With all humility. Now, the way we walk worthy is in all humility, in gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love and in unity. I just basically quoted Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. There are five traits we went through. Humility, gentleness, patience, a forbearing or tolerant love, and unity. They are the characteristics of a worthy walk. And humility is the overarching principle that kind of encompasses the remaining four. Where there is all humility, and it's all humility, there will be gentleness. Then there will be patience. Then there will be forbearing love. And then the end result will be unity. But it all begins with humility. Or lowliness. Not loneliness, low, L-O-W. The lowly walk. So again, it's another progression. But the key to it all is the concept of humility. So I need to accurately define for us this morning what is humility. The phrase with all, by the way, with all humility, those two words, with all, it simply means total. So we're talking here total humility. The worthy walk begins with a commitment to walk in total humility. That means total humility, folks, in everything, in every thought, every word, every deed, in every area of our lives, including every relationship, we always manifest lowliness or humility. And is that true of us? Now the Greek word for humility comes from two words. The first word means low as opposed to high. So metaphorically, it's used to speak of the poor the unimportant or the useless. The second part of the word is a verb that means to think or to judge. So you combine these two words, you know where I'm going with this, it means to think of yourself as what? Lowly. To think of yourself as poor. To think of yourself as unimportant. Thus, as I told you in Sunday school, to think of yourself as nothing. Now what does the world tell you to think of self? What does it tell you to think of self? To love self, to exalt self, right? Churches will tell you to, in the the pop psychology, you know, how to build your self-esteem. In the Bible, what does the Bible say about self? Die to self. Kill the old man, kill the flesh, kill yourself, because it stands in opposition to God. You have great value, because you're made in the image of God, okay? But he wants you to think of yourself as nothing. You're unimportant, you're low. So, to walk with all humility or with total humility means in everything you do, you think of yourself as low. And that is not what you've been taught. And you have people that struggle with low self esteem and say, God bless you. You're getting it. Good. They have value, but in the grand scheme of things, do you or I matter? In the grand scheme of things, do you or I matter? Everybody say it. To the grand scheme of things, do you or I matter? No, we don't. We don't. Okay? Now, listen to this. This is how Jesus thought of himself. And thus lived his life. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, he says this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. The heart is where you in the, the the Greek, it's the thinking. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. But perhaps the best example of the lowly walk that Jesus modeled for us is found in Philippians chapter 2. Turn there. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. And if you wanted to learn how not to to live an offense-free life, it'd be good for you to memorize this. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, you see that? How you think about yourself. Regard one another as more important in yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude, and an attitude is always what? It's the way you think in yourselves, which was what? Also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or taken granted, but he emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this introduces a very crucial concept of humility. Selflessness. You see that? This is so important that I put this quote down here for you. It's a simple quote. If you get anything from a sermon, maybe you can get this. And it's this total humility is the absence of self. With all humility, total humility is the absence of self. Now, I want everyone to look at me because we've been talking about, you know, angry birds and, and the trap of offense and, and living an offense free life. The bottom line on Christian living is the elimination of selfishness. And this has profound implications in regards to offense. If I think of myself and my desires as unimportant and I put all my thoughts and energy into putting the interests of others first, I don't have the time or energy to be offended. Right? If I am so others-focused... I don't get offended. That's the first step, the first key in living a defense-free life. Because the person who walks in total humility is almost impossible to offend. And you see this in the life of Jesus. Turn to Luke chapter 23. A very, very powerful example of this. We're almost done with this sermon here, so. Luke 23, verses 33 through 40. I mean, if you think about it, when you are in love with somebody and you are are so focused on them and and not yourself, they can do anything, and you can find it so easy to forgive and to move on, you know, and, and to just... That's that's love covering over a multitude of sins. But it's a focus on others, that's total humility. Look at verse 33 of Luke 23. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Go up to verse 35. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves, and the people stood by looking on, Even the rulers were sneering at him, saying he saved others, let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us so many temptations to offend be offended insults slander intense emotional and physical pain just to name a few and yet amazingly in the midst of such suffering jesus says this in verse 34 Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. How is that possible? Total humility. Jesus was so focused on who? The interests of others. And their interest was they had a sin problem and he needed to deal with it. So throw it all at me. It's not gonna offend me. Jesus was so focused on the interests of others he could endure the suffering and avoid the trap of offense. We drive a car, someone cuts us off, or drives too slow, we get offended. Our God who created and, sustained and sustains us walked in total humility and he did it, folks, in the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the same power of the Holy Spirit to walk as he walked, can we do less? When we understand who we are, and we live out a balanced life, the worthy walk, we're up here, balance it out in your high position by walking humbly, the lowly walk, you're on your way to living an offense free life. And God, I remind you, is interested in balance. See, not only does he want us to live a balanced life, but he will balance the scales. Let me show you what I mean from both the Old and New Testament. Look at this verse right here, Proverbs 15:33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, but watch this. Before honor comes what? Humility. Humility. Before honor Comes humility. So humility precedes honor. Right now, we are to walk humbly while on earth. But what's coming? Honor. At his second coming, Jesus will do this. He will transform the body of our what? We're in a humble state right now. That's not balance. This is who we are. This is where we are. I'm going to balance it out when I come again and give you what? A glorified body. I will honor you. And guess what? There will be balance. There will be balance. Into the conformity with the body of his glory. That's you. Your destiny is glorification. You get that glorified body. Before honor comes humility. But honor is what awaits us. So, engage wholeheartedly in the lowly walk, the walk of humility. And I skimmed over a lot of this just to give you the basics of that one word, or the three words with all humility, to give you an idea. Because what do you hear? Well, not next week, but the week after that, what it means to be gentle or meek and the profound impact that has on offense. But total humility means the absence of self and you get to that point, you work to that point it becomes harder and harder for you to be offended and so what I want you to do this week is just to read those first three chapters of Ephesians you need to know who you are I would advise you you've heard me in Sunday school pray through these prayers without a bible in front of me I've put those, these prayers within me know who you are it's the first step And by the way, he gave you all that doctrine. And the very first thing he told you to do, by the way, is what? It's not speak in tongues. It's not raise the dead. What is it? To walk humbly. To walk humbly. Let's pray. As as we close with a song this morning, I thank you for your word to us. It's not an easy word, but it's a necessary word. You oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Lord, we need more grace. May we learn to walk in humility as you walked. May we learn to put the interests of others first. Die to ourself. And all God's people said, amen.